Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to Pax Britannica, the Scottish Revolution interview series, Defining Revolution with Professor Julian Gooder. Welcome back to the Pax Britannica Scottish Revolution interview series. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Julian Goodair, Professor of History at the University of Edinburgh. Professor Goodair is one of the foremost experts on Scottish witch hunts and the study of Scottish superstition, and long-time listeners of my podcasts might recognise his name because of how often I use his work in the History of Witchcraft podcast. I always imagined that if I ever interviewed him, it would be for that. But, as well as his work on witch beliefs, he's also written some wonderful pieces on the events of the Scottish Revolution, particularly co-editing a 2014 volume on the subject with Dr Sharon Adams. In this, and in his other contributions, he makes quite a persuasive case for the revolutionary nature of these events. Due to technical issues, my first question wasn't actually picked up by Zoom, but I asked him to explain where he saw his work in the wider historiography. Thank you for inviting me. My contribution to the political history of Scotland and the history of Scottish government has mainly focused on the period before the revolution. So the century or so between the Scottish Reformation and the Scottish Revolution, symbolically dated 1560 and 1638. And, you know, I've written quite a lot about political events and uh, government and development of the state in that period. And, you know, I could say more about you know, what my arguments are there. But to summarise my arguments there, I think seeing the development of an integrated state, which if you're thinking about this in the way in which it relates to a revolution, you could draw an analogy between that and the French Ancien Regime before the French Revolution. Now, the parallel is inexact, but it's occurred to other people before now. And, you know, even... Louis the Sixteenth, you know, thought of himself as a bit like Charles the First, and you know, is is he, you know, the um, the last absolute monarch before the revolution cuts his head off? And so, looking at processes of Scottish government and politics in a European context, and seeing how monarchies, you know, integrate their nobilities into a more centralised system. Uh, develop more taxes, more, more bureaucracies, centralised laws, and so forth. And looking at that in 
a continental framework is something that I've done a lot. And trying to see the regime of James VI and I and Charles I as a, an absolutist state, somewhat technical term that gets used from time to time in, in the literature, is something that I've been trying to do. I think some of the people who've read my work in a British context have assumed that I was trying to argue that uh, you know James and Charles were somehow tyrannizing over the nobility and destroying the power of the nobility. I don't think I ever said that. Part of the debate here is whether you look at this in a British framework, which I'm willing to do, or whether you look further to continental Europe and see Scotland in a European context. And so my argument in a way is that the Scottish regime of the early 17th century and indeed the English, if it comes to it, are both variants on a theme that you can find throughout Europe, certainly throughout Western Europe. And it makes it in a way less surprising that, you know, these are normal monarchical states of the time. So looking at the politics of that period does make you think, well, it did make me think, you know, and what happened next. And, you know, I've studied the details of the politics of the 1640s, 50s, and later period in less detail. But I've, I hope I've looked at it enough to be able to make some comments on what difference the Scottish Revolution may have made. And I'm happy to adopt the concept of a Scottish Revolution, which was introduced by David Stevenson in his celebrated book of 1973. He wasn't the first to argue that it was a revolution because you occasionally get terms like Presbyterian Revolution before then. But by calling it a Scottish Revolution, he was drawing attention to its political character. This is not just about religion. And that was an important part of Stevenson's argument that I think everybody since him has uh, has taken on board. So, you know, Stevenson is the pioneer. And the book that I co-edited with Sharon Adams, Scotland in the Age of Two Revolutions, which you were kind enough to mention, arose from a conference which David Stevenson chaired. And the book was dedicated with permission to him. So, you know, we are all very much sitting at the feet of David Stevenson and, and admiring the way in which he set the paradigm in which we think about these things. So this is a political revolution and it's a seizure of power and it's about the state and government and not just about religion. And it is, of course, also about religion. But we can think about religion in a broader context and politically we can see politicians using religious ideologies. So I'm deliberately calling religion ideology in order to make claims about their power, to cement their power and to justify their power. And another of the threads of the work that I've done about politics and government is to look at how governments operate and how governments legitimize themselves. You know, governments are not always universally popular, but people on the whole relate to governments and respect governments and generally think, yeah, okay, we do have to have a government, even if we don't like the present king or, you know, or the present prime minister or whoever. You know, that process, the process of governing and being governed is one of the things that has interested me. And if if that's a useful contribution to the debate, I'd be pleased to, to think that it is. 
And here I'm also going to mention the name of Laura Stewart, who wrote the other, I think, really important book about the Scottish Revolution. That's a more recent one, her book, Rethinking the Scottish Revolution. She also thinks about government and about taxation. Laura and I have had many fascinating conversations about the details of taxation, which I won't uh, <laughs> um, bring into this uh, unless you really beg me to do so. Uh, <laughs> so she is thinking about the covenanting regime as a government and thinking about political processes and thinking about political participation and sort of discourse and petitioning and all sorts of things you'd have to talk to her about rather than me. But these are the ways in which we're currently thinking about the Scottish Revolution. And there has also been recent work that has looked with fresh eyes at the religious aspects of it. And I just sent off a review of a very interesting book edited by Chris Langley about the National Covenant and you know, looking at the way in which covenanters use religion. But my place in the historiography, which is what you originally asked me about, I suppose, the key piece that uh, you were thinking about, probably that was my chapter in that book, is simply called The Scottish Revolution and looks at the revolution in a, in a kind of comparative and contextual way and asks, you know, what do we mean? by calling this a revolution. And David Stevenson had said a lot about that, but he was looking at it in the 1970s and I thought it wouldn't do any harm to revisit the question with what people since then have said about revolutions and just to make some comments about what we mean by revolution. And this may lead on to what I think is your next question, which is about definitions of revolution. And uh, at this point, I'm going to do what one doesn't do in a podcast and simply read out the relevant paragraph from my paper. I, I wouldn't normally dream of doing this, but you know, in a way, the whole thing is spun out of this paragraph and so much was distilled from this paragraph. And, you know, I went over this paragraph so many times, redrafted it and read more things and thought, you know, is this right? That, uh, you know, this particular paragraph is important to me. So this is what I called a, a diagnostic definition of a revolution. So a diagnostic de definition of a revolution. How can you tell whether something is a revolution or isn't? Well, if it has these symptoms, then it, it, it is a revolution. So let's go. A revolution is a seizure of political power in a state. It is resisted by the previous regime, often by force, but overcomes the resistance successfully with the aid of popular mobilization. Revolutionaries appeal to a distinct ideology of reform or renewal, which is in practice innovatory. The establishment of the revolutionary regime is accompanied by large-scale and deliberate restructuring of the political system and is sometimes followed by wider social and economic change. This definition thus contains some mandatory elements, seizure and redistribution of power, revolutionary ideology, popular mobilization, and some optional extras, social and economic change. Now, that is worded carefully. And to give you some examples of the care with which I've worded it, you know, revolutionaries appeal to a distinct ideology of reform or renewal, which is in practice innovatory. You know, they may actually be, you know, on the surface at least, be claiming to 
go back to the good old days. And one example of that would be the National Covenant. You know, everybody knows that, you know, this was the Revolutionary Manifesto. And I quote a contemporary who calls it a manifesto, Presbyterian Manifesto, I think he calls it. But the National Covenant did not claim to be innovatory. You know, it quoted the text of a document of 1581, which it called a covenant. Whether this document was a covenant is something that one could argue about. But, you know, what does a covenant mean anyway? We could come back to that if we really need to. But what it said was, we think the king, or rather not the king personally, of course, but his wicked advisors have deviated from the correct understanding of religion, which was established in 1581. So all we need to do is to get rid of the recent innovations and go back to the good old days. So not innovatory at all. In practice, however, you know, any historian will tell you this, you can't really turn the clock back. And if you make demands based on a document from 60 years ago, you are going to be moving forwards with that document and not back to that time 60 years ago. That is one of the ways in which I see ideology being used in a revolution. We could talk about other aspects of it. You know, what do we mean by a seizure of power? What do we mean by a state? And I think you might be coming onto this. What do we mean by popular mobilization is another question. But I think those kind of questions do give us an idea about how do we recognize a revolution when we see it. Now, one of the scholars who very much influenced me when I was developing that paragraph of definition of revolution was Eric Hobsbawm, a veteran Marxist. And Hobsbawm, you know, as a Marxist, had a sort of particular sort of theoretical approach, or one might more uh, sceptically say a dogmatic approach of, um, you know, what he was looking for in history. One of the things I admired about Hobsbawm is his intellectual flexibility. And, you know, he, he was never simply seeking to uh, endorse existing dogmas. And one of the things he said about revolution in his paper in which he tried to define revolution much more generally is that he was almost calling off the search for a precise list of symptoms. Uh, so he suggested that revolution could be seen as a syndrome. And, you know, diagnostic and syndrome are both terms from medicine. And, and the point about a, about a diagnosis is that, you know, the doctor is looking at your symptoms and deciding that this list of symptoms matches that condition. If you've got this list of symptoms, we can say for certain that this is what is wrong with you. And Hobsbawm, again, using another medical term, called it a syndrome. And the point about a syndrome is that it doesn't have a single fixed list of symptoms. Instead, you can just select from a menu, as it were. You know, here, here is 10 symptoms that you might have if you've got any seven of those. But there's no single one that is mandatory. I thought that was very interesting. I didn't need to be as flexible as that. Because I thought, you know, if you begin with seizure of political power in a state, that is pretty much mandatory. I can't compare the Scottish Revolution with anything that doesn't have seizure of political power in a state. Revolutionary ideology of some kind, that's pretty much mandatory. If the revolutionaries don't say anything theoretical or don't issue any propaganda or don't try to justify what they're doing, then... Yeah, I, I find it hard to compare that kind of action with the Scottish Revolution. Similarly, if the common folk are not interested at all, and if there is no disturbance in broader society, then 
yeah, I'm, I'm not interested in comparing that with a, a revolution or considering that that might be a revolution. And so I went on to talk about some other things that are not revolutions, you know, in particular coups d'etat. You know, a coup will have some of these features, you know, seizure of political power, but it probably won't have popular mobilization. It might not have ideology and so on. So some other things that are a bit like revolution or share some features of revolution, but nevertheless, I would say are not revolution. There are civil wars, for example, wars of succession. People are trying to seize power. But, you know, if, if there is not a revolutionary ideology, if it's simply, you know, I am the legitimate king and that guy is a usurper, uh, then that's not a revolution in my terms, not unless it goes further than that. You know, there, there can be succession aspects or dynastic aspects to early modern revolutions. Unless we've got my core things, I'm, I'm not interested in calling it a revolution. Nevertheless, the fact that Hobsbawm was as flexible as that does encourage me to be flexible. And finally, my optional extra of social and economic change is my way, I suppose, of uh, sort of keeping lines of communication open to the Marxists who are interested in those things. And actually, you don't have to be a Marxist to be interested in social and economic change. But, you know, the Marxists have particularly interesting things to say about how, you know, the state and political power relate to social and economic change. That was a fantastic answer. That was, that was brilliant. And I was, I was reading along because I have your book open uh, in front of me. So I was reading along that paragraph. You can tell you spent a lot of time perfecting that. I've already got it highlighted. So, (laughs) (laughs) well, I'm, I'm flattered to learn that. Thank you. The revolution and the bishops' wars and, and, and the Cromwellian invasion and everything that comes after that, they often pop up in popular memory or popular myth of the Scottish history. Not as much as, say, Bannockburn or, or Robert the Bruce, but it's still there. Was there some distinct awareness that we are Scots, this is a Scottish Kirk, we are protecting it against others? Yes, now this is a very interesting question. And again, I'd like to begin with an attempt to define our terms. And I'm actually going to reach for Eric Hobsbawm again. I don't spend all my time reading Hobsbawm. <laughs> but uh, but uh, in, Hobsbawm did write a very thought-provoking uh, book about nations and nationalism. And you know, other people have written this about this as well. But uh, I think Hobsbawm is actually quite mainstream among the people who write about nationalism. Uh, And when we are thinking about nationalism today, uh, we are tending to think in terms of nation states. And nationalism tends to be a claim that if you have a nation, you should have a state. Or conversely, if you have a state, you should have a nation. I mean, those two things go together. The point about somebody who is a nationalist is that you must align the nation and the state. And so if you have a stateless people, that stateless people, now what what do we mean by a people? And in modern terms, you know, the uh, you know the the ethnic claims to identity of a people will you know come in different shapes and sizes but uh, but you know the existence of a people like the scots or the kurds the palestinians tends to lead logically to a claim that the scots or the kurds or the palestinians should have a state and you know in modern terms that means they have to have a flag they have to have an army and a navy they have to have ambassadors they have to have a seat in the united nations and they have to have their own tax system and so on so the idea that you know a, a people identified in some kind of ethnic way should because they are a people should have a state 
you know, is a nationalistic idea. And, you know, once you've got your state, you then have to make it ethnic. You know, you, you have to prove that it's a Kurdish or a Scottish state and you have to do Kurdish or Scottish things in it in, in order to vindicate its claims to nationalism. So uh, Scotland for the Scots. Nationalism like that is uh, about the drawing of boundaries and it's about the establishing of exclusive claims. So, you know, we are Scots, we are not English and so on. And um, so we want our own state that is separate from the English state. The English have to look after themselves. And if that is how we understand nationalism as an attempt to use political means to align a state and a nation, to create a, an, an integrated state with a distinct ethnic identity, then I do not see that in the 17th century. You know, when I look at the leading political or religious actors who do stuff in the 1630s and 40s, you know, the question I would ask is, well, first of all, let's just look at the Scottish ones. But, you know, are the uh, Scottish ideologues, the Scottish politicians, the Scottish covenanters, you know, are they saying, um, you know, we are Scots, they are English, because we are Scots, we should have our own distinct state that is separate from the English or British state. And we should have our own institutions that are distinct and that we should behave ethnically in a Scottish manner. And I do not see that. I do not see that at all. The National Covenant is Scottish because it exists within a Scottish framework. But it, it is fundamentally a religious document. And, you know, saying that it's not just about religion uh, should not blind us to its religious quality. And it is ultimately a Christian document. It was issued by a king of Scotland in 1581 and his court and adopted within a Scottish context. But the claims that it makes and the truths that it articulates are universal ones. They apply to all Christians and to all humans insofar as all humans ought to be Christians if they aren't yet. And that's why the covenanters who had signed the National Covenant were perfectly happy to move on to create the Solemn Legan Covenant, which broadens the, th the whole thing out to a British Isles framework and you know, explicitly says that you know, what we've done in Scotland, we're now also going to do in England because it's going to be just as good in England. And we're also going to do it in Ireland. It's just as good in Ireland. Once the Irish get this lovely religion, they will think it's wonderful as well because it is the correct religion. It's the one that has been mandated by God. And you can work that out. It's in the Bible. It's there for everybody to read. <laughs> and the Solemn League and Covenant is not simply British nationalist either. They're not trying to create a British state and saying we're now going to behave in a British manner and, uh, and, and draw boundaries around Britain, which will separate us from the continent and we're going to have a British version of Christianity. No, it's explicitly ex expansionist. Other nations can join this. Uh, you know, the, the, there is a clause about extending it to other nations. So, you know, this is as far as we've got, but, you know, we're, we're, we're going to extend this into the continent when we get the next opportunity. So it is not about drawing boundaries. It is not about exclusive claims to specific states. It is a universalist ideology. And when I see the political actors responding to these documents, uh, you know, obviously sometimes you see them doing things in a Scottish context, but sometimes you 
you see them doing things in a British context. And, um, you know, my former PhD student, Mark Jardin, who wrote a piece about the um, radical United Societies, as they called themselves in the 1680s, who looked back to the covenants, you know, they were the persecuted remnants of the covenant as they, as they saw themselves. But, you know, very radical anti-establishment regime. They were looking back to the covenants. They were Scottish, okay. But, you know, they had close links with English radicals. And, you know, they also sent missionaries to the continent and they did their best to try and make links with similar radicals on, on the continent. And, you know, they thought of building links with the French Huguenots, but actually they were really disappointed in the French Huguenots. The French Huguenots don't have the right ideology. But, you know, the question of being Scottish or French that wasn't of interest to them. They're very much internationalist whenever they get the opportunity. I think I say it somewhere in my chapter, in, you know, anything that happened north of Berwick, you can label it Scottish if you want. But, in, you know, unless it is explicitly breakaway and unless it is explicitly trying to al align a Scottish people so-called with a Scottish state so-called, then I find it hard to see it as nationalist in modern terms and to use the word nationalism without very careful qualifications and without drawing a distinction between what these 17th century guys are doing and what modern nationalists are doing. You know, there is a very firm distinction that needs to be drawn there. If that distinction isn't drawn, we can very easily be led astray. I think that's a very fair warning against being too anachronistic with our terminology. Brilliant. So thank you very much for that. You state in your chapter that basically by mid-1641, autumn 1641, the Covenanters had won, essentially. They, they'd seized power. The revolution was over. And then, and then what follows is what Mike Duncan, who's a historian and a podcaster, he's termed the entropy of victory. So whenever a, a, a revolution succeeds, all of a sudden the glue holding all these various factions together starts to fray. And we see the divisions that would sort of papered over rise to the fore. So I'm wondering what you think about that term, or at least that idea. Was the Covenanter Alliance fated to fall apart once they achieved something close to victory? Yes, that's a fascinating question. I'd have to think about the term entropy of victory. I'm not going to give an immediate uh, response to that. But uh, yeah, one of the things that has fascinated me for a long time about revolutions and the comparative study of revolutions is the trajectory that revolutions have, or very often tend to have. And very often there tends to be a sort of unifying moment, uh, a sort of euphoric moment. Yes, at last, you know, this is the truth. We are going to uh, build this wonderful future and we're going to use the national covenant to do it. And, uh, and so there is a, a sort of feeling of euphoria and bursting of chains. And this then does not last because, you know, as you say, you know, there are divisions that have been papered over and, you know, everyone has agreed to the National Covenant, but they haven't always necessarily had the same idea about where they wanted to take it. And, you know, one of the sort of simple analytical tools that always comes out here is the, the division between moderates and radicals. And, you know, it, it, sometimes it's too simple to talk about moderates and radicals, but it is usually useful to look for moderates and radicals in a revolution. And the arguments among revolutionaries and also between revolutionaries and counter-revolutionaries, if there are some, usually there are a few, tend over time to lead to fragmentation. Whether that's the same as uh, um, entropy, I'm not sure. But yeah, the, the divisions do come to the surface and 
they they come to the surface in different ways and it's interesting to see revolutionaries trying to maintain their unity. And if, if I could depart briefly from the Scottish Revolution, one of the interesting things that AJP Taylor says about revolutions, because he has an interesting comparative book about revolutions, is you know he, he compares the French and Russian revolutions. And um, one of his points about the Russian Revolution and you know all revolutions after 1789 is that they have contained revolutionaries who have known that that's what they were, you know, even long before they made the revolution, you know, they got up in the morning and said to themselves, I'm a revolutionary. You know, what I need to do is to cause a revolution to happen. And when they get their revolution, like the Bolsheviks in Russia, you know, they, they think, you know, we are going to have a revolution. Now, one of the things that Taylor says is that the Bolsheviks after 1917, you know, were thinking about their revolution in a historical framework. They were thinking about the Paris Commune. They were thinking about the original revolution of 1789 and wanting to avoid their mistakes. And one of the mistakes that they thought the revolutionaries of 1789 had made is that they had paid insufficient attention to the problem of Napoleon. And the French Revolution went wrong because it led to this, you know, imperialistic dictatorship. Okay. And so the, the Bolsheviks after 1917 were thinking to themselves, you know, we don't want our revolution to go wrong in the way that the French Revolution did. We don't want a Napoleon. And so says Taylor, no doubt with a glint of humour in his eye, so <laughs> says Taylor, the Russian revolutionaries distrusted Trotsky because he behaved in ways that from time to time looked Napoleonic. He was the kind of guy who might turn into a Napoleon. And they trusted Stalin, who didn't. <laughs> These are ways in which you can analyse revolutions comparatively. And, you know, if this is at all relevant to the Scottish Revolution, uh, I suppose uh, it, it's to observe that the Scottish revolutionaries, by and large, were not consciously located in a revolutionary tradition in that way. You know, they, they had to make it up as they went along. Uh, and, and um, you know, obviously they had ideas about uh, sieges of political power. Uh, I would like to know more about this. I'm not a, a specialist in political thoughts. And so, you know, what they thought about, say, Machiavelli, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert on that. And, um, you know, one of the problems that other scholars besides myself have been frustrated by is, is uh, the Marquis of Argyle uh, clearly has thought very deeply about these things, but he plays his cards very close to his chest and it's very hard to work out what actually is going on in Argyle's politics and ideology. So he didn't he didn't leave a useful diary. He no, uh, and he, you know he did he 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 actually did write a book of advice to his son, which you would think you know would clarify his ideology, but it, it doesn't. It's platitudinous. I leave others to ponder that. But the tendencies for revolutions to sort of dissipate are, are fascinating. I don't think I've really solved that problem. I, I mention it a bit in in my chapter in that book, but uh, there's others who have written much more about it than I have, and it would be interesting interesting to see a you know large scale comparative study maybe somebody has written one a comparative study of revolutions that that looks at the trajectory it looks at the initial euphoria and then the divisions the disappointment the frustration the radicalization and so on and um, obviously there have been many studies of aspects of that and maybe it's just my ignorance that i don't know uh, of someone who has produced a sort of magisterial comparative study that that could be used to analyze the scottish revolution further but 
but um, we have to do the best we can. If we accept that the, the, the Covenanters were revolutionary, that leads to the conclusion that the people who are against them may be seen as counter-revolutionary. Now, does that hold any water? Can we see not just the obvious thought being royalists being counter-revolutionary, but people who also were on the side of the Covenanters early on, and then once things are achieved, they want to stop it there, they want to stop the revolution from going any further, versus the radicals who potentially do want to keep it going further. You mentioned moderates and radicals, and yes, I've always agreed that these are useful terms, and we can also talk about royalists in the sense of conservatives who really didn't want the revolution at all, or you know wanted as little of it as possible, and radicals wanting perhaps you know even more than the mainstream is routinely prepared to deliver. And one of the the ways in which moderates and radicals can cooperate is that, you know, so long as the bandwagon is rolling, you know, they know that the the question of how far they want it to roll doesn't have to be addressed today. It's useful for them to cooperate today. Uh, and the, you know, the radicals may have in their minds an idea that it ultimately could go much, much further, whereas the moderates are just thinking, let's tinker around a bit and then settle down. Um, but they can make that alliance because the radicals see that the moderates are also moving in the right direction. So, uh, you know, what is it that they fall out about? You know, what is the role of royalists? And part of the problem here is that once this gets to be a military uh, confrontation and you get victory and defeat in the various revolutionary wars, civil wars, and wars of the three kingdoms and so forth. Once people are defeated, they tend to fall silent. And so you get a problem of sort of silent royalism. And the reason they're silent is because, you know, they're just scared to put their heads above the parapet. But, you know, they haven't necessarily thought to themselves, oh, yes, that covenant was a wonderful thing after all. <laughs> and, and this is a, a broader problem that political scientists have when they think about legitimacy. You know, you see a government governing and the people doing what the government tells it to do, more or less. But, you know, how much legitimacy does that government have? You know, how much would it take for that government to be toppled? And the end of the Cold War and the so-called Velvet Revolutions of 1989 to 91, you know, are examples of that. You know, we suspected that those regimes on the other side of the Iron Curtain in East Germany, Czechoslovakia and so forth were a little bit insecure and that their peoples didn't really regard them as all that legitimate. But it was, you know, hard to show that. And it was, you know, hard to show people being sceptical about those regimes. I mean, there used to be jokes told in regimes like that. Oh, you know, the regime's losing its grip. You know, the majority in the elections slipped from 99.2% to 97.6%, you know. You know, does this indicate fundamental scepticism about the regime or is this just people having a laugh? Uh, you know, could be a bit of both. The problem of, of legitimacy is uh, a problem that could be investigated further, I think. And uh, I, I think that's really what's one of the many interesting things of the work of Laura Stewart is that by looking at political discourse, you know, she is l looking at that in, in, in more detail. 
Um, so splits between moderates and radicals, where do we see splits between moderates and radicals? Now, in a comparative context, one of the revolutions that it's obvious that one can compare the Scottish Revolution with is the English Revolution, which I'm firmly dating 1640. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's a tradition in English scholarship that, that dates the revolution 1649. But you know, when I looked at the people who wrote about the revolution as dated 1649, none of them actually were using a diagnostic definition. What they were doing was saying, you know, here is a time when you get lots of radical stuff. So I'm going to call this the revolution. And to me, that is unhelpful. I don't think you need to say that is the revolution. You could just say here is a time when you get radical stuff. But the revolution was the seizure of power from Charles I. And it happened in 1640 with the Long Parliament. Once the Long Parliament assembles, you know, Charles does not have his hands routinely on the levers of power. And that is the moment of euphoria. You know, at last in England, you know, we can sort the things out and we can get rid of Charles the first handful of evil councillors and uh, and have you know um, a con consensual and a happy but also revolutionary regime so we'll do things in a radically different way and you know how radical the Eng English radicals want to be is an open question and in the course of 1641 they start disagreeing about this. And the various scholars who've written about the English Civil War, quote unquote, I was very privileged to, to be a friend of Conrad Russell, who was spent many years worrying about the problem of the English Civil War, uh, was, you know, how you get from unity in 1640, everybody agrees in the Long Parliament, to division in 1642. And in 1641, you know, lines start to be drawn. And the moderates who started thinking, yes, we want to get rid of Charles I's regime, they, they, they start worrying about the radicals, thinking these radicals are actually, you know, I'm not sure I agree with this anymore. Uh, you know, they're Puritans, they're going to take us too far. There's a lot of stuff there that we don't agree with. And they tend to turn back to the king at a relatively early stage. And one of the curious things about the English Civil War is the royalist manifesto then. Every schoolboy knows the Royalist Manifesto was the answer to the 19 propositions. Let's not worry too much about all 19 of those propositions or what the answers were. But the, the point about the answer to the 19 propositions as a whole is that it is a relatively moderate and conciliatory document. And so Charles and the Royalists fought the Civil War on a manifesto that attempts to build bridges to the other side and to restore uh, a moderate compromise. But within just a couple of years of the Civil War, and I forget the details of this, so you're probably not going to be able to broadcast this. Viscount Falkland, uh, what's his name? Um, Fiends, I'd have to look up his name, but Viscount Falkland, who was one of the authors of the Answer to the 19 Propositions. So, you know, um, at Charles's elbow, his leading ideologue, he is a convinced moderate royalist uh, and he you know he wants to restore the consensus you know he hates the idea of civil war and he you know he wants to repair the damage being done to the body politic by civil war and you know he's very reluctantly thrown in his lot with the king because he thinks the king can restore harmony and it's the sort of radical parliamentarians who are the ones who are causing the trouble but after a year or two at Charles's court, he realizes 
that the royalists too are becoming extreme and that the royalist high command that Charles is listening to are conservatives who don't want to build bridges either. And Falkland becomes increasingly unhappy with this. Uh, and at one of the early battles of the Civil War, you know, he gets on his horse and rides directly towards a hedge that he knows is stuffed with parliamentarian snipers because he couldn't stand it any longer. You know, the tragedy of the moderate who wants to build consensus when there's radicals on both sides is one of the interesting features of revolutions. So I'm not sure if this is an answer to a question that you've actually asked me. It does tell you something about border processes, and I wish I could tell the story better. But in a Scottish, in a Scottish context, we do not see the split that the English parliamentarians see, or not until much later. And, you know, Civil war doesn't break out in Scotland in 1642. And, you know, the English Civil War, in my frame of reference, is a counter-revolutionary civil war. You know, the revolution has happened, mm. but Charles I launches an attempted counter-revolution. We see something similar to that with Montrose's uprising. And Montrose is trying to do what Charles did in 1642. Now, Montrose is also interesting because he is also a moderate and he has been a covenanter. I don't see Montrose as a sophisticated political thinker. You, you know, he is talented in many ways. He wrote rather good poetry um, and he's clearly a skillful and imaginative military leader, though how far we attribute his victories to Alastair McCullough is a question that I would leave to David Stevenson. What is clear is that when Montrose raises the royalist flag, he doesn't get the kind of rallying to that flag that Charles got uh, when he ra raised his standard in 1642. You know, Montrose, so Montrose is a defector from the covenanting movement, but he doesn't get other defectors. He, he gets, you know, when he gets his chance to hold what looks like a parliament or might turn out to be a parliament, I can't even remember the people who turn up to it, but they are sort of pretty forgettable nobles who have never made much of an impact, uh, you know, either before or after 1638. And it is interesting that the nobles are the most royalist category of people in Scotland after the Covenanting Revolution. But uh, it, it's not all the nobles and many of the important nobles remain on side. Uh, among the covenanters. So, so when you think about divisions in the covenanting movement, you know, um, Montrose tries to create division and he does a bit, but, you know, he, he largely fails. And despite that string of apparently spectacular victories, it only takes one fairly small defeat and that's him finished. But he, he, is, he has largely failed to build the broad royalist consensus that he sought. And he, that's partly because he is working with people who are more extreme royalists, such as Alastair McCullough, uh, you know, who, who simply wants to kill covenanters. You know, and the more he can kill, the better. You know, he's not intent, interested in compromise at all. And the, his field of vision is much more narrow. He's more, much more limited to the Highlands and the covenanters he mainly sees are called Campbell. So Montrose, in a sense, I don't want to criticise Montrose too much, but, uh, you know, his uprising is to some extent opportunist. And, you know, his alliance with a bunch of Irish Gaelic-speaking Catholics is pretty opportunist, given that he himself 
you know, always insists that he's a Protestant. And in fact, he always insists that he's a covenanter. He always insists that he endorses the national covenant and endorses the step that the covenanters took after that, which is to say the covenant means no bishops. So uh, Montrose is consistent enough to say that he has never been an Episcopalian. Um, in a comparative context, it's interesting to see that, you know, if you look at definitions of English parliamentarians and royalists, you know, Montrose almost doesn't get to first base as a royalist in English terms, because somebody who's not an Episcopalian is almost bound to be a parliamentarian and can't possibly be a royalist. But, you know, Montrose, there he is. Presbyterian royalist. Curious, I don't have a solution to that conundrum, but if there is a solution, it is that he is maneuvering for short-term political advantage, as many political figures often do. You know, in the long term, how long his alliance with Alistair McCullough would have lasted is a question that will never be answered because they didn't survive to tell the tale. Just to stay with Montrose for a little bit, how much do you think that his his failure at building a broad consensus and, and drawing these these defectors, how much of that is a failing on his part, him, him being a noble, an aristocrat with all the grudges and feuds that come with that, and how much of that is, is the strength of the Covenanters or the Covenanter Alliance? I'm not an expert on Montrose. I tend to see Montrose as quite a talented figure, so I don't see Montrose as sort of bungling his uprising. Allying with, you know, Irish Gaelic-speaking Catholics is, you know, a, a tactical decision that he made with probably awareness of uh, the, the pros and cons. Um, but I tend to see it more in terms of the strength of the covenanting movement. And it's worth remembering that the defeats that Montrose inflict on the covenanting movement are effectively defeats on the reserve army that has been left um, uh, to, to, to look after the homeland while the main covenanting army is uh, away fighting in England. So they're not telling us anything significant about covenanting, fighting strength, infrastructure, um, uh, and certainly not political support because he, he, he is not really able to fracture the political consensus that so I'm more struck by covenanting strength and covenanting unity at that point. Fantastic. Now, speaking of consensus in England, as, as the wars go on, the more radical social questions start to be asked and we get groups like the Levellers and the Diggers. I'm curious, were there similar groups in Scotland around this time? Yes, the levellers and the diggers have fascinated scholars for a long time. And, you know, I'm part of the historical generation who grew up reading Christopher Hill, who wrote very learnedly and eloquently about the levellers and diggers. And Hill is still well worth reading on, on, on that subject. And the levellers and diggers and, you know, the radicals in the Putney debates and so on, you know, are interesting partly because of their sort of philosophical sophistication, the way that they can speak to modern times, and, you know, the way that you can quote them in inspirational ways. And there's the um, famous song by Leon Rosselson called The World Turned Upside Down, which is simply a quote from Christopher Hill's book, also called that, um, you know, which 
has certainly inspired many people. And I'm going to tell you an anecdote, uh, which, you know, if, if you broadcast this, you've got more space in your podcast than I, I, I credit you with. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I'm going to tell it because I think you'll like it anyway. So, so Liam Russellson wrote this song that, you know, I'm, I'm a sort of very amateur folk singer. I play guitar, you know. I sing that song. It's it's a it's a very good song. Billy Bragg sings it, and so on. That song went international, and it reached Nicaragua and was translated into Spanish. And the BBC made a documentary about Nicaragua, and they recorded Nicaraguan coffee pickers. I think they were singing this song, and they broadcast it as a sort of traditional Nicaraguan coffee picker song. And Mosselson phoned up the BBC and said, you know that song, you know, I, I wrote it, you know. And they, and they went, no, 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 it's a traditional Nicaraguan coffee picker song. A uh, person from whom I, I heard that story, I heard it told from the stage by Roy Bailey, another folk singer and long-time Russellson collaborator. So Bailey told that story and said, the length the BBC will go to to avoid paying royalties. Uh, <laughs> This is a, a sort of long and rambling way around the question of the importance and inspirational character of levelers and diggers and the political thought more broadly in the English Revolution, because, uh, you know, the English Revolution led to a huge explosion of uh, debate and tracts, the censorship broke down, you could say practically whatever you like and people would print it. And, and, and studying these ideas and, you know, and, some of which come from sort of major canonical thinkers like Thomas Hobbes, uh, uh, has been fascinating for English scholars. In Scotland, we get much less of that. There is some interesting political thought in the Scottish Revolution. The leading thinker of the Scottish Revolution is probably Samuel Rutherford in his book Lex Rex and various other writings. And, you know, Lex Rex is, is fascinating, but it's not inspirational to um, radicals in modern times in the way that Gerard Wynne Stanley has been, for example. In some respects, um, so Rutherford is conservative in the way that he argues. He argues scholastically. He tells stories. Of, he's also sort of relentlessly Presbyterian. And he also is not in sympathy with the English radicals. And when uh, John Milton, another of the English radicals who the English scholars like Hill liked, you know, Milton argues against censorship, uh, you know, and, and says, you know, freedom of speech will be, will, you know, will lead, lead uh, to the, the, the flowering of progressive debate and so on. And, you know, the, this is the kind of thing that we like to hear now. And, um, and, and Rutherford publishes a tract explicitly arguing against Milton. So, yeah, do we want to hear that today? <laughs> Historians want to understand it, okay? Um, and Rutherford, in his own way, is very radical. And that, that, that does need to be understood. So we need to ask ourselves you know, how radical he is. And there are some people who articulate things that are even more radical than Rutherford. And in my paper, um, I, I quote a very little known pamphlet called The Declaration and Vindication, which David Stevenson discovered, um, which sounds as radical as the, the Putney debaters. Uh, and, um, but as I say, it, you know, it's not as eloquent. It's much more framed in the Presbyterian um, religious language that transfers less readily to modern political debates. 
Um, I should mention here that one of the people I hope you'll speak to if you haven't done already is my friend Louise Yeoman, who has written about covenanting piety in fascinating ways. And, uh, and because she's uh, not only a uh, academic historian, but also a radio presenter and producer, you know, can talk about this very eloquently. You know, she's uh, a very good person to to, to get onto uh, anyone's podcast. The emotional intensity of the sort of covenanting Presbyterian Puritan religious experience is something that's worth understanding in its own terms. And in Scotland, there definitely is radicalism of that kind but the way in which it's expressed is not as remarkable as the radical expression in the English radicals and at this point I'm going to sign off and say talk to Laura Stewart because she knows more about this than I do and she published a paper on why there are no levellers in the Scottish Revolution which uh, you know I don't want, really want to steal her thunder. When Cromwell invades Scotland and he, he occupies the country, would you consider the revolution to have been defeated at this point? What about when the restoration comes a decade later? Does the revolution, has the revolution been defeated? Well, yes, this is an interesting question. And uh, um, how would you define revolutions? We asked about, asked about that earlier. And one of the questions when asks about revolutions when one's defining revolutions is about the success of a revolution. So how can you define revolutionary success? Uh, you know, seizure of power, all right, you know, then how long does it have to last? You know, does it have to be still in place hundreds of years later for it to be defined as a success? If not being in power a hundred years later, does that regime have to be defined as a success? Uh, in Mexico, there's a party called the Institutional Revolutionary Party. We're going to maintain the revolution forever and ever and ever. Um, and th these questions in some ways are um, not questions that are helpful to ask, but are questions that are helpful in order to enable us to ask better questions. Uh, but yeah, a successful revolution has to seize power, has to establish a new regime, and has to last for long enough for it to be interesting. So if it is later defeated, well, you know, it was still interesting for as long as it lasted. However, I'd actually like to argue that the Scottish Revolution is more interesting and more successful than that, and that its defeat either by Cromwell or by the Restoration isn't really fundamental. And neither Cromwell nor the Restoration regime, despite the latter's uh, loudly proclaimed intention to do so, really turns the clock back to the regime of Charles I. And they're both, to some extent, you know, building on many of the revolution's successes and you know, continuing processes that the revolutions started in, in, in motion. Also, if you ask, well, how stable or successful in the long term was the regime of the Covenanters in the 1640s, you can ask that question about Cromwell's regime too. You know, did he really succeed in defeating the Covenanters or anything? You know, wasn't his regime dismantled as well? Did the Restoration regime really succeed? Wasn't their regime dismantled as well. And so, yeah, I don't see 
their regimes as necessarily more successful or more longer term than the regime of the Covenanters. And in the longer term, I tend to see longer term success for the Covenanters and uh, the revolution of 1638 confirmed by the revolution of 1689. And the revolution of 1689 isn't exactly the same as 1638, but there are enough similarities, I think, to see longer term success for what the Covenanters were doing. Not all of what the Covenanters were doing, as I say, but, you know, quite a lot of it. So uh, nothing lasts for the really long term, but I do see, you know, quite long term in political terms, quite long term success for the Covenanting Revolution. Let's talk a bit more about the 1689 revolution. How did the legacy of, of the events of the 1630s and the 1640s and the 50s, how did that actually influence the, the glorious revolution? I would tend to answer that in terms of what happened after the glorious revolution. I suppose I should mention that the not everybody likes the term glorious of revolution course. yeah uh, i'm 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 perfectly easy easy about it you know if uh, i'm happy to join any consensus if we want to to uh, use that term consensually then you know i would happily go along with it i mean all these terms are terms of art but there are some people who take exception to it for reasons that i can't really quarrel with so the revolution of 1689 in scotland exemplifies and continues the legacy of the Covenanters of 1638 in a number of ways. So uh, if you ask me what is the legacy of 1638 as it emerges in and after 1689, then uh, I could point to a number of different aspects. Now, in political terms, we are looking at a largely constitutional regime, a regime which governs with the aid of parliament. So parliament is entrenched in the regime. And indeed in 1689, you can see the Scottish parliament explicitly hiring and firing kings. You know, there is no fiction of abdication. Uh, James II and VII is explicitly deposed. So the parliament, well, the convention of estates as it still is at that point, uh, announces that it has the power to depose James. And then they separately say, right, now that we've deposed James, who shall we have as king instead? And so they make a separate decision that they will appoint William and Mary to the vacant throne. So the fig leaf of hereditary succession is largely absent at that point, um, although it's maintained in England. So there we see symbolically that this is very much a parliamentarian regime and it remains a parliamentarian regime for reasons that are a great extent to do with money and to do with the regime's need for taxation, which it is agreed that only parliament can grant. One of the notable features of the post-1689 regimes, both in Scotland and in England, is that parliament keeps control of the purse strings. It does not simply hand over money to the monarch and say, you can collect these taxes for a long period, or you can collect these taxes for life or in perpetuity. If it had done that, then we could have 
gone back to or indeed forward to a more absolutist regime of the kind that is still very powerful on the continent. So the distinction between the absolutist monarchies of the continent, you know, exemplified by that of Louis XIV of France, um, and the constitutionalist English and Scottish states is very prominent after 1688-89. We have religious pluralism and those things play themselves out slightly differently in England and Scotland, but in practice, I think the result is the same. In England, we explicitly get toleration quite rapidly. There's a, a toleration act, capital T, capital A, and it takes a decade or two uh, before it becomes explicit that plural Protestant churches will be tolerated and legally um, in Scotland. But it is an inescapable legacy of the revolution of 1689 that the attempt to stuff everything back into Presbyterian uniformity uh, is doomed from the start. And um, my colleague Alistair Rafe has recently written interestingly about that. And he has argued that it's what he has called James II and VII's multi-confessional experiment, where he granted toleration to the Presbyterians in order to play both ends against the middle. Um, let some kind of genie out of the bottle, that's my metaphor, not his. And that after that, it was very hard to go, go back to a, a sort of uniform Presbyterian regime. And there's been interesting subsequent work done by uh, ben Rogers, who did a recent PhD, uh, looking in more detail at the failure of uh, the uh, uh, attempts to bring the various Presbyterians back together again and the development of the idea that the Episcopalians are going to be a separate church. So instead of capturing the church and making the entire church Episcopalian, they, they're going to go off and have their own churches separate from the Presbyterian ones that are going to be identifiably Episcopal and that they will tolerate each other. And this is part of a broader picture of how multiple faiths come to tolerate each other in the modern world. We occasionally see intolerance in the modern world, I can't help observing, but by and large, you know, religious toleration is a feature of the modern world. And if we look at that from a 17th century perspective, you know, we can see that coming in perhaps unexpected and certainly unintended ways. Uh, from the revolution of 1638 followed by 1689. You know, none of the covenanters wanted religious toleration and their leading theorist Samuel Rutherford argued explicitly against it, but nonetheless that was the consequence. In terms of state formation, the covenanters modernised the state and modernization tends to be uh, a term of something we approve of. You know, I don't necessarily like states all the time, but we have to recognize them as features of the modern world. And, um, and, and so, you know, the covenanters are doing things to the state which will move them forward into modern states. And they introduce a more modern and manageable land tax system. This is a lot of the stuff that Laura Stewart has written about more than I have, so you can ask her about it. Um, they have a more modern sort of commercial regulatory regime that will sort of regulate the economy instead of being to some extent predatory on the economy as I've argued the absolutist state to some extent is. Uh, they modernize land tenure and they introduce uh, sort of few firm as the basis of the legal 
holding of land and the conveyancing system of land. And that was abolished only in 2000. And its abolition in 2000 was really a tidying up. So, uh, uh, you know, that's um, something that comes into the modern world. They begin the process of uh, division of commonties, as it's called, which enables landlords to assert exclusive control over land previously held in common, which you know, provides some of the legal and state infrastructure for the modernization of agriculture. Again, you know, what we mean by modernization, we might need an entire separate podcast to discuss. That. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, the covenanters do all those things and the subsequent regimes generally take them and run with them. You know, even the restoration regime, which professes to hate the covenanters, they don't hate the covenanters tax system, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they do make one attempt in 1665. Let's go back to the tried and tested ways. And then the, as soon as they start to collect the taxes using the tried and tested ways, they realize, oh, my goodness, I think we realize why those tried and tested ways were such rubbish. Yeah, let's quickly <laughs> reinstate the covenanters system. So um, fiscal and state infrastructure, there's a lot that the covenanters do that is a continuing legacy that is moving things forward. Some of this on the previous regime. And to go back to what I said at the beginning about the fact that much of my own work has been on the regime before 1638 and looking at that as a sort of absolutist state, uh, you know, that previous regime is also not simply reactionary, wanting to hold back change and not do anything nice or progressive. And they do do some changes that can be seen as progressive. And one aspect of this, which I hope to write more about, is reform of teens. Teens are tithes in modern English. It's a tax on agricultural land nominally for the benefit of the church. And this needs to be reformed. So many people agree in the 1620s. And Charles's regime institutes a program of teen reform. Now, in some of the books, this is linked to Charles's so-called revocation, which I don't want to detain you with. And the revocation is alleged to be very unpopular. Now, when I used to teach a course on the Scottish Revolution, I used to say to them, OK, let's look at Charles's revocation and at teen reform and look at what happened to this when it was so unpopular and when the Covenanters had the opportunity to do something different. So I said to, to them, Charles's regime instituted this system of teen reform and it became law in Parliament in 1633. And, you know, you've all been told, you know, this is what all the books say, that this was part of Charles's revocation and Charles's revocation was a grievance, it was unpopular and it led to the Covenanting Revolution. So I say, you know, how long did it take after 1638 for those acts of 1633 to be repealed? And you, you get various answers. And some people say 1638, 1641, 1649. Some people, you would usually say 1651. And I would go, okay, who said 1651? You were closest. The correct answer is 1925. <laughs> so Teamed reform was a long-term thing. It was a modernizing thing. And the Covenanters 
they didn't abolish it. They set up a new team commission as soon as the, the dust had settled on the bishops' wars. And, you know, they recognised that it was a modernising and useful thing. And so they took Charles's regime and ran with it. They didn't make a song and dance of doing that. But nevertheless, that's what they did. So uh, revolutions don't necessarily revolutionise absolutely everything. And the previous regimes are not necessarily completely anti-revolutionary. And so, uh, you know, the scholars who have simply tried to list all the things that Charles I was bad at in order to explain the covenanting revolution, you know, I think are only telling part of the story. And um, intriguing sometimes to look at the covenanters as being successful in destroying Charles's regime, even though they themselves would later you know, reincorporate part of the pieces of that regime into their their new system. So uh, s seeing all regimes as in some sense dynamic doesn't necessarily take away from the revolutionary character of a revolution, and it may indeed enable to see it more correctly than it was before. So my argument in arguing for continuity between the 1630s and 1640s in the matter of teamed reform uh, isn't an argument against the overall revolutionary character of the Scottish Revolution. I think it was revolutionary. Fantastic. Professor Goodair, was there a Scottish Revolution? If we are asking the question, was there a Scottish Revolution, we have to be clear about defining our terms. And revolution can be defined in different ways. And the best thing I can do is to give you my definition of it, which is about seizure of political power in a state. And it's about use of distinct ideology. So the revolutionaries appeal to a distinct ideology. So they know they're doing something different. And it is accompanied by large-scale restructuring of the political system so the revolutionaries govern differently and they use popular mobilization as well so the upheaval is so large that you know the common people in some senses are involved in it so a revolution in this sense is distinct from say a palace coup it's also distinct from something like a civil war or a war of succession in those terms, was there a Scottish Revolution? Yes, I think the Covenanters did seize power. They seized power successfully. They governed for a number of years. They restructured the political system in ways that had many long-term consequences, some very long-term consequences. The ideology also played itself out. The popular mobilization is interesting that's not necessarily a long-term thing but it underlines the distinct character of the revolution and i think the revolutionary character of the revolution can be underlined by the way in which it even leads to some broader social and economic change in the way that the state organizes or intervenes in the economy and society so Yes. Fantastic answer. Thank you very much, Professor. Thank you as well for coming on and uh, speaking with me today. No, you're welcome. So thank you for uh, putting me on the spot, asking lots of interesting questions. Good luck with the podcast. Thank you very much.